This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. I guess we can get started on our good doctor story. We have a doctor that's actually with us this week. We don't always get to have the subject of our good portion of our podcast, and it's always exciting when we do. And I'm very excited to get to tell you about this person and the research that he's done. It is really amazing. And I think you guys are going to just be really fascinated by him and the book that he's written. This is Dr. Ardavan Asley. He's a board certified spine surgeon who received his undergraduate education at the University of California, Berkeley, where he double majored in physiology and genetics, and he earned his MD from New York Medical College, completed his residency at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, while working with some of the world's most renowned scoliosis surgeons. He received his spine surgery fellowship training at a little a little school called Harvard University. In addition to his private practice, Dr. Asley has been active in researching and developing cutting-edge treatments for osteoporotic and aging spines. He lives in Sacramento. So I am going to welcome him, and then Tom and Ben are going to kind of take over the interview. Welcome, Dr. Asley. Thank you very much for having me. So, Dr. Asley, we got to talk a little bit before the show. First of all, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. We told people about your background, but really the book started off on some things you were noticing going wrong in spine surgeries, and that just wasn't getting corrected. And it started with the pedicle screw. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so what made you notice it? What was going wrong with it? And like, how did this all start? Uh, very well. It's actually to understand it, we got to go back a little bit in time to explain what these pedicle screws are. You know, spine is a mechanical device. It's a bunch of bones that are stacked up on top of each other and separated by these cartilage. We call them discs. Sometimes when the there's an injury accident or so. The disc gets injured and causes pain. So the treatment for that is to remove the disc and turn the two bones into one bone with a surgery we call a fusion surgery. So we started doing these surgeries, let's say, in 70s and 80s. The problem with this surgery is that once you take the disc out and what you do, you put some bone graft between the two bones, and you're hoping that this bone graft will turn into one bone. Well, unfortunately, in about 25% of the surgeries, so 75% healed very well, but 25%, this bone graft didn't turn into a solid bone, and we ended up what we call a non-union. So as 
spine surgery is a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. Orthopedic surgery, like I became orthopedic surgeon first, and then I did a fellowship in spine surgery, which was one year, and I started practicing as a spine surgeon. So from orthopedic surgery, treating fractures, we knew that the best way of healing the two bones together is to immobilize them together. Right around 1960s, a German team, Swiss-German team, came up with the idea that we screws and plates into the two fracture ends, hold them together, and immobilize them with plates and screws. We call that AO technique, Angrestero Osteosynthetica. We call it a rigid fixation. So we... and. After that, we had great success treating fractures in long bones like arm and leg. Well, we had the success. So we said, okay, we got to do similar thing to spine. Right around 1985, two surgeons in France, they were able to somehow find the anatomy that they can insert large screw. It's like a really big bolt from back to the front into the vertebral body. And the vertebral, vertebra is a basically spine bone. We call it vertebra. So you could insert these large screws from back to front, one on each side. And these screws have a tulip that can accept a rod. So if you want to fuse, let's say, three bones, two bones, three bones, four bones, you put screws in consecutive bones, and they all have a tulip, and the tulips line up, and you put a rod, and basically, you connect these screws together and you immobilize that section. So when these screws came out, it got presented in 1985 to American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Once we saw that, we were like, aha, uh-huh, this is what we've been waiting for. So from that point on, we started using these screws. Problem is that initially, right around early 1990s, we did not have very good results. There were actually at some point, there were about 7,000 lawsuits against the manufacturer of these screws. A company called Software Organic, which became Medtronic, and another company. So, and at this point, the spine surgery was divided because spine surgery is a subspecialty of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. So orthopedic surgeons were saying, oh, we got to use these screws. They're great. But the neurosurgeons were saying, what are you guys doing here? So when all of this was going on and the lawyers, not only they sued the manufacturer, but actually they sued the doctors too. They sued at some point, there were about 500 lawsuits against North, North American Spine Society and American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So not only they sued the manufacturer, but they sued the doctors too. So as this was going on, and there was a Senate investigation at this time to use of these screws, a doctor named Dr. Zdeblik from Wisconsin, he's the head of orthopedic or orthopedic spine division in the University of Wisconsin right now. He published a paper saying that these screws work beautifully. They are absolutely awesome. They increase fusion rate and they improve outcome. So this paper got published in 1993 in Spine Journal. Once this paper got published, two things happened. One, spine surgeons started saying like, aha, see, we knew this was good. So the use of screws skyrocketed and the use of screws became standard of care. 
And two, the second thing happened is that these lawsuits disappeared for lack of evidence. And actually, this paper was a good chunk of it. Everybody kept pointing to this paper. So we started using these screws. Then I came along, and we noticed that the problem is that around late 1990s and early 2000s, six paper came out, six papers, multinational, multi-center. They looked at these screws and they evaluated them. All six, they said that these screws don't work. They do not increase fusion rate and they do not improve outcome. If anything, they cause increased operation time and increased blood loss. So once we saw that, we didn't know what to do with it. And we kept going, we kept continuing. Well, so by... Yes. I, I was going to ask real quick, Doc. So in a case like this, where you have now mounting evidence that the original assertion is incorrect, do you go back and say, okay, guy, explain how you came to this conclusion? Or is that what we're getting to here coming up? <laughs> we're getting to that. All yes, right, that's, I jumped that's ahead. Exactly. Sorry about that, Doc. Sorry. Now, that's okay. That's okay. I'm glad that you said that. That's exactly what we're getting into. So right around – so I finished my training in 2002. So by the time I finished my training, pedicle screws has had a significant hold in the world of spine surgery. They were standard of care. Every time you got the fusion, you use the screws. And at this point, neurosurgeons gave up their fight, and neurosurgeons started learning how to put the screws in. So by the time I finished my training in 2002, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons were using these screws. So the whole 2010s, there was no issue. All the lawsuit has gone back. We told ourselves that these screws work great because we know the screws work great in spite of those evidence, which I'm going to get back to. And then there was no problem. So it, right around 2013, I started my research and development about osteoporotic vertebrae. So what happens is this. Vertebrae, backbone, spine bone, is not a solid block of like a wood or like a cement. It's actually, you can see it as a shoebox. The outside shell is a very solid bone we call the cortical bone, but the inside bone is a spongy bone we call a cancellous bone. So we knew right around 2010s, 2013s, with the aging population, we're having problem with these screws. They keep pulling out. You have to do the surgery over and over and over and over. So what was going on? And that was the time I started telling myself that I have to invent a device. I have to work on this. Because in the past, they tried to make the screws better. They had screws that would open up like a flower. There were screws that you can shoot a glue right through the middle of it, that the glue would come out like spikes. But none of these really caused any like wow factor. So I started my research and development. And I got to be very open about research and development because there's an issue with it that I'll explain later. So I came up with a device that is a flat plate that sits against the lamina and uses composite straps to wrap around the lamina. Lamina is part of the bone in the back of the vertebrae that forms the roof of the spinal canal. So it's a flat bone. It's one of the strongest bones in the body. So I developed this device that uses composite straps. These straps are stronger than same size steel cable. They call it Dyneema. You can check it out. It's very strong material. It's a type of a special plastic. In Australia, they don't use 
steel winches anymore. They're all Dyneema because they're much stronger. Mm. So I use these straps to wrap around the lamina. So my device was able to hold on to the lamina, but using cortical bone as opposed to weak bone. I presented my device to Congress of Neurology in 2015, and I won the innovation showcase. That means that my device got presented to the world of neurosurgery, and I got a great, great response. Some of the surgeons were saying, is it available now? So anyways, so at, but at that time, my device was in a prototype stage. So as I was developing my device, I started learning biomechanics of spine better and better and better. And I hit a problem with my device. To solve that problem, I said, well, let me go back to the screws and see how did they deal with that problem. That's when I started doing research and going into the literature and to try to find out, try to better my device. What I found out was scary. I mean, just flat out scary. I found out that majority of the, not just majority, great majority of the papers that has been published say that this stuff doesn't work. And I actually confronted those professors and they said, yeah, we know, we haven't been able to show. And they all said the same thing to me. They said, we understand, we know that we have not been able to show that these screws work with research, but we will in the future. Don't worry about it. That's exactly what I got from them. Wow. From every one of them. So I said, right. So I said, wait a minute. There's a paper that everybody refers to that paper in 1993. Let's do a little bit more research about that, see what's going on with this paper. And what I found out at that time was flat out scary. One thing is that this paper in 1993 by Dr. Zedevlik was published by him only. There were no other co-authors. It was his work, his patients only. And listen to this. It was published in 1993 as a preliminary report. I spent two years looking for the final report. I was in conference, a spine conference in 2016, and I talked to one of these leaders of the field. I said, where is this final report? He said, it doesn't exist. That study was abandoned in the middle. It was never finished. Wow. I was like, oh my God, wait, just when you think things cannot get worse, it gets 10 times worse. So. Go back to that history. So in 1993, this paper gets published. In 19, by 1996, 1997, these lawsuits start disappearing. But one other important thing happened. Dr. Zedevlik started getting paid from the company that was manufacturing these screws. And he stated that he got paid because of something that he invented. I've seen his invention and I'm not impressed. But he got paid from that by the time from 1997 to 2004, he got paid $34 million from that company. And I was like, oh my God, what is this all about? And this is all in the news. I don't have an investigative person that goes investigate. No, I just do Google. These are all in the Google. These are all in, in news articles. Wall Street Journal, New York Post, these are all in there. So this is there's something else happened that's just ferociously bad. So the same company, Medtronic, put him in charge of another, put Dr. Zedevli in charge of another study, very important study. 
This study was about a bone graft substitute we call BMP. Long story short, this time, Dr. Zdebli got caught falsifying his results. It is crazy. As a matter of fact, this is not me saying it. This is not Wall Street Journal saying This is not New York Post. This is United States Senate came to this com- conclusion. There was an investigation by United States Senate. United States Senate concluded that paper in 2005 was not even written by Dr. Zedeblik, was actually written by the company, and he just put his signature on it. Wow. Is that crazy? So, so we're starting to see, obviously, some of the initial breakdown. And so one of the questions, though, when he put forward this preliminary report, was there any peer review prior to publishing? Or since it was a preliminary, did they just go ahead and put it out into the journal? You know, I mean, let me tell you this. Cannot, I have talked to many lawyers in terms of what I can say, what I cannot say. (laughs) Something that, yeah, because something, I cannot accuse somebody of something, but I'm actually, as a person, I'm free to give my opinion. I'm going to straight just state some facts. Dr. Zedeblik finished his training in 1989. This is something that you can see in his bio. He finished his but he finished his training in 1989, not in Wisconsin, somewhere else. I don't know where he did it, but he, oh, Johns Hopkins, I think. He did it. He did this training in John Hopkins in 1989. So he started his practice in summer of 1989 in Wisconsin. That paper came out in 19, summer of 1993. Now, when you write a paper, you don't call up the, the magazine and they just put it up right away. No. It has to go through some process. So it takes about, let's say, even if they tell you that, yes, we have accepted for pu- publication, they don't publish it in the next issue. They publish it like in six issues from now, like six months from now. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so let's go backwards. Say it was published in 1993. Let's say it took six months, which is very fast. It goes through review and it gets accepted for publication. Well, you just don't publish a paper. You have to have a year of follow-up. So the last patient that you did surgery, you have to follow that one patient, the last patient, for at least a year. So let's say that follow-up goes all the way to all of 1992. So that tells you that within 1990 and 1991, he did all this research within the first two years of his practice. It doesn't make sense. You just didn't have enough time to do a publish a paper that has become the quintessential anchor of an entire specialty. And not only that, he didn't even finish this. This study was never finished. It was abandoned in the middle. So in my book, I do point out to all these facts. And I do say that as spine surgeons, I need answers. If this study was a you know, not an important study, I would not care. But because it's the only paper that says that these screws work, and every time I go to conferences, surgeons, spine surgeons reference this paper, then I need to know why it wasn't finished, what was happening that got published as a preliminary report. I don't see a lot of preliminary reports. The only time I see preliminary reports is in the case that we're waiting, there's something going on, we're waiting for the results, you know. So what was happening in 1993 that this 
was published as a preliminary report and then was never finished. Two, did this disappearance of lawsuits coincide with Dr. Zedeblik getting paid? Because it's awfully suspicious that, you know, he got this, all this amount of money as the lawsuits were going away. It's just, it just doesn't pass the muster test. Now, here's the interesting part. So I went and I actually presented this very fact. When I tell you that, you know, I'm at the podcast, I talk about my book, I wrote the book, people might say, well, did you talk to your peers? Did you present it to your professors? Did you present to the leaders of the field? Absolutely. I've gotten up in the meetings. I've gotten up in the meetings in front of 600 spine surgeons, 1,000 spine surgeons, and I've said this over and over that we, all these evidence shows that the screws don't work. And I get the same answer from all the professors. We know that we haven't been able to show that these work, but we will in the future. That's all they say. And it's mind-boggling. So my question then, if you have an answer for it, is why do they continue to use the screws if the mounting evidence is showing that they're ineffective? And here it comes. That's exactly what I was going to get into. That is the same question that I asked myself for three years. For three years. Every time I would come to these leaders of the field and I questioned the pedicle screw, they wanted to kill me. They just wanted to rip me apart. I swear to God. It's like it defies logic. I mean, I was like, why? what is happening? Why is this happening? I mean, as a scientist, you got to be open-minded to all sorts of possibility. You cannot just brush off a possibility just because you don't like that answer. you got to be open-minded. That's the only way we can progress. So I couldn't really answer that question. If you tell any orthopedic spine surgeon that these screws might not work. They want to kill. They want to just tear you apart. It's like just insulting them. So I had to answer that question. Why? And after three years of questioning research and looking at the literature and talking to surgeons, I eventually found the answer. And this is the answer. As orthopedic surgeons, first we become orthopedic surgeons. As orthopedic surgeons, we deal with fractures. When we deal with the fractures, we learn that the screw is the answer to every problem. Every time you want to heal the bone, you use a screw. This gets hammered in our head for five years that the answer to any problem is a screw. Well, we get trained, we become orthopedic surgeons, then we become spine surgeons. So we apply everything that we learned in the world of spine surgery to spine. And that's what's been happening. And that's exactly what my book is all about. What my book is all about and says that it's not like a big controversy. It's not this all of our, all of us, me included, leaders of the field has sold our specialty to the highest bidder to these manufacturing companies. It's not that. Problem is spine surgery from the beginning was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. What we learned and what we applied to spine surgery from orthopedic surgery, we should have never done that. Spine surgery is too complex to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. As a matter of fact, 
in my book, I explain that. If you want to go from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery, you got to unlearn what you learn and relearn new techniques. The way I explain it is this. Let's say Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics. If you want to build a building, you can use that using Newtonian physics, Newtonian principles. But if you want to build a laser or send a rocket to the moon, you have to use quantum physics. You have to use a completely different medium and language. That's how, that's what we should do. We should just forget about what we learned in orthopedic surgery and we develop new principles and, and laws for spine surgery. For example, I'll give you an example. This is very important for my patients to understand. The concept of rigid fixation that we carried over from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery, the concept of rigid fixation works very well in orthopedic surgery for one important reason. Why? Let's say you have a fracture in the arm and the leg that you fix it with screws and rod, but you're not too happy. It's kind of a weak. Then you have the option of eliminating gravity. So in the arm, of course, you have a sling in the leg, you put, them, you put the patient on crutches. Well, in spine surgery, you cannot eliminate gravity. You cannot put the patient on a sling. You cannot suspend him in the air for three, four months. So you cannot eliminate the gravity. That means that whatever the device you have has to somehow counter these gravitational forces. Every time you get up, you're stressing that. Every time you bend forward a little bit, you stress that construct. Every time you might be falling, you stress. So the concept is this. It's no different than building a building in an earthquake zone. Like in San Francisco, when you build a building, you don't make it stiff. We've done that, and it doesn't work very well. So what you do, you build the building, and you make it on the rollers and make it so it can actually twist and dissipate that energy. Same concept needs to be applied to spinal instruments. I call it, you know, you talk about rigid fixation. I call this new breed of instrumentation devices reactive rigid fixation. So it's not flexible fixation. It's not a rigid fixation, but it's a reactive rigid fixation. So it should be a device that actually can give a little bit. So if the patient kind of falls down or something like twists, you know, the wrong way, the screws don't cut out and everything fail. It could actually bend a little bit, dissipate the energy and go back to its original position. So that way you don't have like just just crazy huge screws coming off and the whole thing is just gone basically so that is the concept that i say when we transition from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery our whole mindset must change completely as a matter of fact i explained in my book is that you know uh, spines i mean orthopedic surgery i hate to say this but i have to say to catch people's attention orthopedic surgery has turned spine surgery into the biggest scam in the history of medicine, according to our literature. Tom, I know you're still using that Echo Litman Core digital stethoscope, aren't you? Every day. As a matter of fact, we had a new provider start in our office. I let them listen to it, and they have already said they were going to be buying one. So it is truly an amazing piece of equipment. You only got to listen to it once. And, you know, normally we hit on the 40 time amplification, the noise cancellation, all that stuff, which is vitally important for this thing. But I want people to know if they buy 
that echo core digital stethoscope that is coming on a high quality piece of equipment. That's a Littman Cardiology Ford that they're putting that echo device on. So this is not just that $20 dollar store stethoscope that they're throwing this better piece of equipment on. Yeah, so you're starting with high quality product and then you're making it that much better. Yeah, so that make sure you go check out the Littman Core Digital Stethoscope at Echo. If you want to find out more from them, you can check them out. It's echohealth.com. It's ekohealth.com. If you use code JSP, it gives you $50 off your order and lets them know that we sent you. Ben, have you been having any pain? You know, I, actually last night while we were recording, I had some sciatic flare-up while I was sitting here. And so, yes. And you know what I used for it when I got done? CBD stat. You use CBD stat? See, I was going to say I don't have pain. And you know why, Ben? Because I've been using CBD stat products. See, maybe I do need to use them a little bit more regularly. But, you know, they are the highest quality CBDs on the market and they're THC free so they're legal everywhere which is nice too because in my state you still can't have THC and they know how hard it is to be a healthcare worker so they want to give you a permanent 40% discount if you're in healthcare you go to cbdstat.care slash healthcare you fill out that form give you 40% off your order just because you're listening to us but they know that our shows attract a population outside of healthcare and they want to help you out because you're listening to the Tom and I. So if you go to cbdstat.care, put everything in your cart when you go to check out Tom, what code do they use? JSP20. That's right, JSP20. They're going to give you 20% off your order just because you're listening to Tom and I right now. Go check them out, cbdstat.care. Neurosurgery, you were saying, is also has a subspecialty of spine surgery, and they do similar surgeries. And there's there's ones that orthopedics do. So if a neurosurgeon is going, a neurosurgeon I know will sometimes say, "Oh, I can't do this one. I've got to send it over." But there's ones that they do. You're saying take it away from the neurosurgeons and the orthosurgeons and have a whole specialty that's just about the spine. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. And this is the interesting part. I, I, I kind of don't want to say this, but I have to say it. This is a very important concept. Whatever I said today, when I say this to an orthopedic surgeon, they want to kill me. But when I say this to a neurosurgeon, I, they totally understand it. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is just such a sharp division between philosophy of orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery that it's just it's just crazy and that's what wasn't one of the reasons that i had to answer I'm like why such a you know orthopedic surgeons they are just sold out on rigid concept of rigid fixation they're sold out on the fact that the screw is as good as it's gonna get and one of the things that that i explained in my book is that you know i went through a lot of training every time i was in training presenting a paper in like journal club or so they would come in, my professors would just tear the you know, study into pieces. Oh, they didn't do this, they didn't account for this, they didn't. some of the award-winning papers. Not one time I've seen that the preliminary report would be accepted as a scientific criteria of being complete. But in the world of surgery, spine surgery, we've done that. We just said, hey, preliminary report, Dr. Zadel, that's all we need. It's just defies it's a pre- logic. preliminary report from one surgeon. Correct. From his own, his own practice. Correct. That he clearly benefited from financially 
eventually. So yeah, well, it is definitely. Well, and some of this seems, well, I guess to the family nurse practitioner, some of it seems like, I guess I understand because, you know, when you talk about screws and orthopedics is the base of your training and screws Correct. are what you guys use. Well, femur doesn't have to flex, you know, so you crush, a fl- you crush a femur. Guess what? I can bolt that thing back together every which way and it don't matter because they don't got to move, but your spine does. And so I can see Correct. a lot of where the issues you've been talking about, how they can develop and how they can continually fester is what it seems like. Correct. Yes, let me explain to you something. When I say that it took me three to four years to answer that question, it wasn't just like, you know, hey, I got to think about it. What do you think? You know, and stuff. I actually, this is what happened. I actually had to innovate. And this is how it went. When we started spine surgery, nobody ever sat down and said, let's study the biomechanics of spine. We all know that even in orthopedic surgery, to way to understand it and treat a fracture, you got to understand is biomechanics. What are the forces? What are the deforming forces? You study, okay, there are the insertion of these muscles. This is what's going to do. This is what, how it's going to deform. Therefore, we got to put a plate or a device that counters that force. When it came to spine surgery, we never did that. I've been to many conferences, and every time I go to a lecture that talks about biomechanics, they talk about the screw, pitch, the thread, the length, the core. These are completely unrelated to the spine. So when I did my research and development, when I looked at the literature, I saw that there's nobody ever sat down and said, what are the deforming forces what are we trying what forces are we trying to stop with this instrumentation and that's what i eventually tried to do and it's explained in my book and this is how it goes i was explaining this to one of my friends and he looked at me and said this is like fifth grade physics you know this is like very simple what are you talking about? i said it's a fifth grade physics after you decipher the whole thing but it is so complex that it needs to be deciphered and this is how it goes. I'm going to show you, of course, our listeners, they can't see this, but right now I'm just pointing to a model of a spine that has, it's a glass model that has screws that are inserted. So if you look to the motion of the vertebrae, what you're doing with screws, you're trying to immobilize the spine, right? So what is the motion? What is the way that this bone moves? You know, it doesn't move, it doesn't slide back and forth. It doesn't go up and down. How does it move? It rotates. Every bone, every vertebrae rotates uh, relative to the bone below. And then when they all rotate, that's how the spine kind of flex forward. So the motion is rotation, correct? Okay. So when you put the screw this way, guess what's going to happen? The screw. Well, yeah, screw has to deal with the rotational motion. Well, the screw is not made to stop rotational motion. I was seven years old. I swear to God, I was seven years old, or maybe even six, when I realized that if you want to take a screw out, you don't yank on it. You toggle it, and then it will come out easier. And that's what's happening inside the spine. You put the screw in, and you tell it to stop toggle, 
And not only that, you don't even give him a cortical bone, you give him a cancellous bone. So you tell the screw to do something that's not made for. You give it nothing but a spongy bone. When the papers come back and say it doesn't work, you don't want to listen to it. You want, because your brain is brainwashed with the knowledge that screw is the answer to everything. Hmm. I'm not kidding you. It's it's just crazy. Well, and do you feel with your experience in medicine that this is a common issue in medicine, not just in spinal surgery? Like far too often in healthcare, do we tend to latch onto something and forsake the new stuff coming out for the act of forsaking it because it's new. We want to stick with what we know. Is this something that you've seen before? And do you anticipate in your field it improving? Like, do you think spinal surgeons are finally going to go, I see the light, you know, or do you think they're well, like the rest of us? And you guys are just like, nah, we're going to keep our head buried in the sand. That's where we like it. It's warm. So I, right. I have to answer that question in multiple layers. And one is this, as I explained, between the neurosurgeons or orthopedic surgeons, it's the orthopedic surgeons that I can't get through to them. Neurosurgeons are very well accepted. As a matter of fact, my device won the innovation showcase in Congress of Neurological Surgeons. I presented my device to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which is an orthopedic-based thing, and they didn't even, didn't even consider it. That, that just tells you right there. So, and it's not just that, when I show these, to an orthopedic surgeon, and I say that my device uses a strap and it's stronger than a screw. They look at me and it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, is that a, that's like the dumbest thing we've ever heard. You're saying that your device that uses a strap is as strong as a screw? That's what they tell me. I swear to God, they cannot just go back. And my argument is very simple. I say, look, you can make the screw as strong as it can hold this building. But if you put it into junk, you got junk. You know, my device may be as not as strong as a screw, but it's hold on to the part of the vertebrae that as one of the strongest bones in the body. The neurosurgeons can understand, orthopedic surgeons can. So that's one layer of what I explained. So even in the world of spine surgery, there's that dichotomy between neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons. Two, when I started my research and development, somebody gave me an advice. And it's nothing bad, you know, to be honest, I'm not bad-mouthing my own kind, you know, the orthopedic surgeon. Because after all, we are very, you know, we are successful, you know, to get into orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery, you've got to do very well in medical school. To get into medical school, you've got to do very well in college. To get into those colleges, you've got to do very well in high school. So we are, you know, we are the very successful students. So he told me, he said, your problem is going to be this. Neurosurgeons or spine surgeons' attitude is that if I did, if I'm not the one that invented this, then it must be junk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, that sounds like something I can so, hear a neurosurgeon saying. Yeah, so, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> but there's another layer that I want to discuss with you, and this happens in medicine all the time. A company comes up with a product. They approach a surgeon that's always a very famous. Surgeon. They're not going to approach some not famous surgeons. They want famous surgeons. So they approach a famous surgeon. Well, guess what? At that point, that famous surgeon starts writing articles that are favorable to that product. And then when we use it, and then 10 years later, we find that the product didn't work, nobody says anything. They just move on to the next product. And in my book, I say that 
wait a minute, there should be some accountability. The CEO of that company, they have one and one goal only, to make money for the, pro- for the company. That's it. Yeah. So the CEO does this and gets partnered, bring a product into the thing. And after 10 years that we find out that this product didn't work, nobody, that CEO is somewhere in south of France and nobody asks him a question. So I would say that there should be some sort of accountability. Somebody has to tell that guy who published paper that was favorable and nobody can duplicate those results. Somebody has to tell him, come back here. What happened there? I mean, if you are a professor, if you are a scientist, you got to be impartial. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. I got to say that I'm just embarrassed that we have not done that job. There was a segment. If you go to YouTube, if you go to YouTube and type in CNN Zdeblik, you would see a segment that actually CNN was looking for Dr. Zdeblik to ask him some questions. And there was a doctor named Dr. Carragy, who is the head of spine surgery in Stanford. And they talked to him and he said that, you know, we didn't live up to our expectations. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be very shocking, okay? This is very shocking when I saw it. So when I say all of these things, it's not just me. A good chunk of the spine surgeons actually agree with me. They just don't know what is happening and what the answer is. About 2020, February, March of 2020, I walked into my office. I get the spine journal. This time... It caught the first article, caught my attention, and the title was this. Undisclosed conflict of interest is prevalent in spine literature. This is our journal. What does that mean? That means our data is tainted. That's our journal is saying. It's just crazy. I mean, I just can't believe that we have to deal with this. And nobody says anything. Well, it seems like one person has said something. Well, (laughs) when I found that out, well, let me tell you. I mean, I went through five years, five years to ask that question to myself. One thing, my wife was very unhappy for me to write this book. She was telling me that, you know, you have a good practice. We have a good life. You can just ruin it with this book. And as a matter of fact, I asked myself for five years, I said, world of spine surgery went through a great trauma in 1990s. I mean, just bad trauma, bad reputation, lawsuits, this and that. You know, with this book, I'm going to be opening those old wounds. Am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, what am I doing here? Is it the right thing? Because after all, it's all for the patient. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about Dr. Zedeblik. It's about patients. It's about the spine surgery as a scientific medical specialty. And I told myself, I said, this just can't happen. You just can't have an unfinished preliminary report be the quintessential anchor of a specialty done by somebody who has been proven by United States Senate that 
His work is yeah. tainted. I mean, you just can't go on like that. So no, Dr. Hasley, you've mentioned your book several times, and I don't think we've actually said the name of it. We're wrapping up the interview here. So what can you tell us the name of your book and where all they can find it at? Yes, the name of the book is Corporate Spine. Uh, Corporate Spine. Very simple. And they can, you know, it's available at Amazon. It's not very expensive, only $25. And you can get it in a few days. When I wrote this book, of course, I wanted to bring up this notion that, you know, the world of spine surgery, you know, all the evidence is just, you know, uh, you know, I have to go back and say, you know, uh, about the state of world of spine surgery. I, in my book, I say that, look, there's one paper that says it works. Six papers says it doesn't work. And the leaders of the field said, yes, we understand that we haven't been able to show that the screws work, but we will in the future. And my argument to them is that every time you fail to show that these screws work, you've actually shown that they didn't work. These are not two separate events. So when you couldn't, so you have all this immense amount of knowledge, research says that they are not working. And we are surgeons. We are implanting these in our patients. We are the ones that changing our patients' lives. It's our duty to show what we're doing is right. And we haven't done that. You know, and so anyway, so when I was writing this book, I wanted to bring about this notion. But I didn't want this book to be just a complaint kind of a book. So what I decided is that the best thing to do is to transfer my knowledge of 20 years of practicing as a spine surgeon to my patients. So they would understand what us as spine surgeons, we go through to the patient who needs surgery, who doesn't need surgery, who would benefit from a surgery. So the first four chapters, the eight chapter, the book is eight chapters. The first four chapters is about me teaching public about back pain, what causes it and the treatments. And then the chapter five and on is about what has happened and where do we go from here? Because I truly believe that if somebody comes up and raises an issue and complains about a state of a event, they have to come up with solutions. If they don't have a solutions, it's worthless. So that's why I had to come up with the solutions to say, this is what we have to do to put a roadmap for the future of spine surgery. Basically. And you were saying both on, and during the pre-show that you would recommend this book for like even family practice for us to get a better understanding of our patients' back pain and the things that we're dealing with them. Correct. So this is about people. See, this is a situation I was kind of getting frustrated. I got frustrated, got used to, and then got frustrated again. You know, every time I talk about surgery to my patients, they just like, oh my God, they get so scared. And uh, it's just very scary to talk about surgery. And, you know, some people expect to do one surgery and all the pain go away. Some people say, hey, why am I need a second surgery? So, so I really think spine surgeons haven't done favor for themselves and for their patients to, to educate them what we do, what we have available to us, what we don't. And people who read this book, they understand now what we can do for them and what we can't do. Because, for example, notion of multiple surgeries. In my book, I explain that some people, they have a local. I divide my patients into two categories, simple and complex. Simple if they have one or two discs that are bad. Complex if they have three or more. Why is that important? It's important because 
when you go to the complex section, your problem goes from a localized area into a regional area. So if you're a patient that has a localized area, these are the patients that they do great with surgery. Now, if people have a regional problem, have like three or four discs that are bad, then the notion of one surgery and then everything go away is just not realistic. These are the people that we have to manage them throughout the years. Therefore, the notion of multiple surgery is not a futile, it's not a bad, you know, outcome, bad plan. This is just something that we have available for the patient. And then that's something that needs to be communicated to the patient so they understand what they're getting themselves into. So if they decide to go that route, they need to understand that's the last resort. They have to do whatever they can not to have the surgery. And then if everything fails and if they're just miserable that they cannot continue like that, then they have to go that path, go down that path. So, Doc, we've covered a lot of stuff tonight. Other than getting your book, what would be a yes. final parting thought you want the crowd to hear before we get off tonight? Obviously, we uh, want sure. everybody to read it, uh, but is there anything like maybe that's not directly in the book or something you're just like, this is vital information. You got to know this before you get the book and it'll make it all make sense. One thing that I want to say that I actually shot some videos for every chapter. So I figured, you know, some people might understand, some people might not, some people can read the book, some people can't. So I actually have explained every chapter with a video. And hopefully this website will come up pretty soon. And the website is spine, corporatespinebook.com. So corporatespinebook.com. So hopefully, like today is December 21st, 2022. Hopefully within a week or so, this website would be up and running. So if the patient's want to watch the videos first and then read the book so they have some sort of a background or read the book they didn't understand it or they don't want to read the book they can watch these videos and i try to explain them so that would help them because this book is for everyone you don't have to be a doctor or in the healthcare to read this book if you have back pain if you're older if you've had surgeries you would benefit from this Awesome. Well, Miss Tina, is there any last thoughts you want to share with Dr. Asley before we go? I can't really think of anything in particular. I do appreciate you and all the work that you've put into this. And I, I can appreciate your wife, too, for being <laughs> yeah. concerned about that. I could... I, I kind of empathize with her. It's that is a very bold and brave thing that you are doing to put yourself out there. I've been looking up the this information as you were as we've been discussing this and it is all over the internet and it is telling how there are all these these articles you can find from like 2007, 2009, 2011 about probes into the situation and physicians gaining financially from, you know, Medtronic and all of this. And then it just goes away. <laughs> and I'm just like, what happened? You know? So I think this is, it's interesting. It's, it's something that I don't, I feel like there's so many things like this, as we said earlier, in healthcare that go on. And it's like, how do you turn the Titanic around? It takes a long time, but you're doing, you know, you're doing the one, putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get your message out there. And I know writing a book is not easy. And so putting yourself out there like that, I appreciate you so much for all the hard work that you've put into this. Thank you. And, you know, I got to tell you, it was a very, everything that I've said in the book, I had to think 10 times about it 
to make sure that's the right thing. But I'm going to end with one thing. When I say people that, oh, I'm writing a book, and this is about the fact that everything we've done so far is wrong, they, you know, they look at me and like, what are you yeah, talking that'll about? That'll grab your attention. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. And I have to tell them one thing. I have to show them literally one thing, and they will go, and I see their jaws drop. Just do this. Google Zedeblik Spine Fusion. If you Google right now Zedeblik Spine Fusion, you will see that paper by Dr. Zedeblik comes up. If you look at that, you will see that it was published in 1993, okay? If you look at that closely, you will see that's been referenced in 1,100 articles. And you can see that's a preliminary report. How in the world? This paper is the most referenced paper in the entire world of spine surgery. Right now, if you open North American Spine Society website, and you look for the section that looks for recommendations. And the section that they talk about use of the screws, they have Dr. Zdeblik's paper as a main reference. And I tell you right now, how in the world a preliminary report can become, and that, that's been proven, that's been unfit, that's has not been finished, is abandoned in the middle. There's no final report. How in the world a preliminary report has become a quintessential, most referenced paper in any special? Well, especially when there's six others refuting it. That makes it very, very hard to understand. Multi-center, multinational. You want let me tell you a story now. This is a this is an interesting story. It, this just tells you what I'm dealing with. Okay. So I was in 2016, I was in North American Spine Society. At that time, I was just starting to put the two and two together. So I was nowhere close to where I am today. I was just starting to start questioning and approaching professors and say, hey, what's going on here? So I got up in front of 600 or spine surgeons and I said, look, there's multiple papers that says that these screws don't work. So go from here. And then the panelists, you know, and I didn't want to get in the fight because these are my professors. These are very famous people. Who am I to question them? And one of the professors in the panel made an explanation that didn't make sense, but I didn't want to attack him. So I stopped. I sat down. 20 minutes later, listen to this now. 20 minutes later, I'm in a line to get coffee. I'm talking to a surgeon. He introduces me to a surgeon behind me that was standing behind me. He says, oh, this is Dr. Asley, this is Dr. So-and-so. I'm not going to mention name. The surgeon behind me says, and he tells him, he says, Dr. Asley doesn't like the screws. And the surgeon behind me says, oh, you're the gentleman that questioned the screws and you said that, that made that comment. Well, I got to tell you that we all are welcome to our opinions, but I just want to tell you that you're very wrong. I said, it's not about me. I have nothing to do with it. All I'm saying is that all this research says that stuff doesn't work. Maybe, just maybe they're trying to tell us something. He said, listen to this. He said, I know. I published those papers. Those are my patients. I'm like, oh, yeah, what's your name? He told me not my, his name. And I had the papers in my hand. I said, well, let's find it. It was the second paper in my hand. His name, 
was on the paper. He was the fifth author. He says, see, that's me. These are my patients. I'm like, okay, let's read your paper. At the end, the last sentence said, based on this evidence, we do not recommend routine use of pedicle screws in spinal fusions. He looked at it. He stroked his chin. He said, no, that's wrong. And he walked away. <laughs> to his own paper. <laughs> I kid you not. I swear to God. And this is not some story that I, this is my, this has happened to me. This is what I'm dealing with. <laughs> yeah, when people are refusing their own work, that's pretty tough. <laughs> well, Doc, it has been a very entertaining and really great look into something that I think we all have heard about. We all know somebody that has had a back surgery or has bad back, but nobody ever really learns about what it takes to fix it. So hearing it from, well, lack of a better term, their horse's mouth, that has been fantastic for me. Ben, do you have any last thoughts? No, I'm I'm just kind of in shock and listening to that, and I was actually kind of researching it while I, while we were talking. So yeah, the word shock I would use frequently during the last part of this interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but but I just want to say that there are good news with 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 e printing, with laser drilling, with materials that we have now that we didn't have ten years ago. We do have the power to come up with the appropriate devices. So the future is bright. Right. Except somehow, <laughs> somehow, somebody, and it's not going to happen from inside because I've tried it. Somehow, somebody has to tell these surgeons, the leaders of my field, saying that, hey, man, you might want to take a second look at this. <laughs> and that's all I'm asking for. <laughs> well, I think that's a good question. Right, right. Miss Tina? Thank you very Thank you. much for sure. having me. No, I had a great time, Doc. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all of your hard work. And Tom and Ben, remind everybody where they can find you and your podcast. Uh, you can find us at justonpodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. Our other podcasts will continue to monitor. That's also at justonpodcast.com. So you can find everything over there. And you know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. And we're on all social media at goodnursebadnurse. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Wearing just to pass the time Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known Took a press so I could find my cheek Find mediocrities the best I Without you